When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Ferry. Welcome to another rebroadcast from the RTB Archives. So from Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. So I'm John Plotz, and our RTB virtual guest today is the world-renowned sci-fi novelist Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh, His trilogies include The Three Californias, Science in the Capital, and very deeply beloved in my household, The Mars Trilogy, which is red, green, and blue for those scoring at home. He has won um, way too many Locus, Hugo, Nebula, and other awards uh, for me to list here. And he has an asteroid named after him, which um, in my science fiction class we use as a a test of something. In an earlier life, he was a PhD student of Frederick Jameson, and he wrote his dissertation on the novels of Philip K. Dick. Um, He's been a Californian since childhood, though he did, I just discovered, live in Boston um, long enough to get a degree from Boston University. Were you living, uh, Stan, were you living in Boston at the time? Yes. Oh, oh, great. So that's, if, if you were living near BU, that's probably about three miles from where I am perched right now. So. Well, I, I was in Boston last month, and I uh, walked down to my, the apartment I lived in uh, in 1974-75, which was in Alston. Uh, oh. So um, it was west of BU, and it was a great year. Oh, that's great. Yeah, um, that's that's on my regular bike ride to, to Widener. So I, I love that neighborhood. Um, uh, so, so Stan, thank you so much for doing this. It's, it's a great pleasure. Um, it's, it's my pleasure. Cool. So this is um, the latest installment of our Books in Dark Times series, which, as you probably know by now, asks what books we turn to for guidance, sustenance, or encouragement at dark moments like these. You know, what books have you been turning to for comfort or joy over these last few weeks? Weirdly, I was in the Grand Canyon um, on a rafting trip between March 11th and March 19th. Wow. And so when I came out on March 19th, things were spectacularly different than when I went in and we were out of contact. So to tell you the truth, since March 19th, I've been in catch up mode. I've had a hard time understanding, believing, and um, uh, my personal life is very similar to what I lived before. I I write at home, I garden, I I exercise. It's not, um, my social life, of course, is as gone as anyone else's or it's been put online, but my my life was already kind of a, a shelter-in-place type life. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so that's that Grand Canyon uh, interlude sounds amazing. I mean, that sounds like something out of a, a end of a Last Man novel. It's like the Purple Cloud or something. <laughs> yeah, and uh, George Stewart, Earth Abides. I'm I'm yeah. writing an introduction for Earth Abides, and I think that's what happens to the main the protagonist of Earth Abides is he comes back from a trip into the wilderness and everybody's gone. It's yeah. not quite. It's you know it's not really like that now. It's more interesting in so many ways and a little less uh, apocalyptic. Yeah. But but it it's there are similarities enough that when I came out I had many requests for commentary and I realized that people now think of us as being in a uh, science fiction novel. Yeah. Uh, or they think science fiction is now the genre that is the best realism of our time and I've been saying that for many years. So it was a um, interesting to see that now being uh, felt by other people as well. Yeah, and can can you uh, play that thought out a bit more? Like, do you think that um, the the thing that you've been saying about science fiction is the realism of our times? Do you think that when people come to you for comment, do they do you do you think they're thinking about it the same way that you are, or are they just? Is it just they hear the word COVID and they reach for dystopia? I, you, well, there's that. Um, there's also a notion that I don't think is right and I don't agree with that science fiction is about predicting the future. Right. And since predicting the future is impossible, that would be a high bar for science fiction to have to get over and it would always be, always be failing. And in that sense, it always is failing. But it's more of a modeling exercise or a way of thinking. And so what I've been saying for a long time is um, we're in a science fiction novel now that we are all co-writing together so we're all science fiction writers and and it's a it's a mental habit that everybody has that has nothing to do with the genre but has to do with planning and decision making and how people feel about their life projects so you have hopes and then you plan to get to your hopes by doing things in the present well that's utopian thinking um, you have middle of the night fears that everything is falling apart, that it's not going to work, and that's dystopian thinking. Mm -hmm. and, and so um, it's, there's nothing special going on in science fiction thinking. It's something that we're all doing all the time. And world civilization right now is, is teetering on the brink. It could go well, but it also could go badly. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a felt reality for everybody. So in that sense, I think this is what I've been saying, that science fiction is the realism of our time. Say you want to write a novel about what it feels right now. Some novelist is, is here in April of 2020 thinking, okay, I have to write about what this feels like right now. Well, um, you can't avoid including the planet. You can't avoid, it's not just going to be an individual uh, wandering around with their consciousness of themselves, which for in modernism, novels were often like that. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's the individual and the society, and then there's the society and the planet. And these are very much uh, science fictional relationships. Mm -hmm. Can I ask, because this is something I think about a lot, how, when you think of those as science fictional relationships, where do you place other speculative genres like, say, fantasy or horror? Do, do they sit alongside science fiction for that? Or are they subsets in, in, your, in your understanding of science fiction? No, it's more a clustering. Um, John Clude, who wrote the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction and uh, a big part of the Encyclopedia of Fantasy, he has a good, a good term that he's taken from Polish, mm -hmm. fantastica. Mm -hmm. 
uh, spelled with a K at the end. So Fantastica is any uh, non-domestic realist genre. Mm -hmm. So you've got horror, fantasy, science fiction, um, the occult, alternative histories, whatever else might fit in is Fantastica. And I am interested in science fiction. And I would say for myself in terms of definitions that science fiction is set in the future um, and it has a historical relationship that can be traced back to the present moment. Hmm. And so what's interesting for me in terms of that definitional power, the cut you can make is that fantasy doesn't have that history. It's not set in the future. It doesn't run back to our present in a causal chain. Mm -hmm. So um, now the moment I say that, you can then begin to uh, sure. bring up fantasies that take place, you know, where Coleridge runs into ghosts or whatever. But um, as a first cut, I think it's a useful definition. Uh, but definitions are always a little, you know, yeah. troublesome. So something that was putatively science fiction then, but set off in a different, in an alternate universe, wouldn't be science fiction for you. It would be more fantasy. Like, in other words, if it I, now I'm, I'm trying to think of the perfect example here, I guess Star Wars comes to mind. But, you know, something in other words, the important thing for you is the point of departure from our own present to make it science fiction. Well, that I when you pointed out, that makes it clear that this is just one type of science fiction, one subgenre within the larger genre. Um, space opera where you're zipping about the galaxy and the laws some of galaxy yeah some galaxy and the laws of physics are much relaxed well um, you there was a talk of science fantasy to describe jack vance or gene wolf's work where right. essentially you set a text so far in the future like five million years in the future or a billion years in the future well anything could be happening then so it it feels like fantasy, but you have this cover story that is supposedly science fictional. It sounds as if you're saying you've got a uh, kind of an ethos, a way of reading that really wasn't affected by this, you know, crazy pandemic moment that we are experiencing. Do you, do you have any thoughts about why that might be? Like, do you think that's true? Is that is that something? Does that say something about you temperamentally or? Yeah. Yeah, I've worked out my own reading habits, and um, because I it was a, a student for so long, got a PhD in literature, and have been involved in various kinds of um, teaching or selection committees or award committees, I don't like to read anything that people tell me to read. Uh -huh. <clears throat> I make my own schedule of reading, and I follow, I go to the used book sales at my local library, and I pick randomly, and I read randomly and I enjoy the feeling of randomness. Yeah. So within that, I have my loves and I go back to them and try to be comprehensive because I enjoy it. I enjoy getting to know those writers as writers. Um, in the, and also for research from my own science fiction novels, I have to read a lot of nonfiction. Yeah. And it's interesting, but only in the sense of uh, strip mining texts for information. <laughs> And, okay. and being fast okay. at it. Like, I, I would like to be able to touch a book on the spine and immediately know everything in Download it. it. Uh -huh. Yeah, when it comes to nonfiction, I've got pretty good at looking at tables of contents. And many a nonfiction book should only have been an essay in the first place. It's been, it's been padded. Yeah. And, and so I'm good at finding what I need in nonfiction, being very instrumental about that. Well, that kind of 
uh, burns my any feeling of obligation to learn more about the current world. I've I've I'm already um, I've got an influx of periodicals like Science News or London Review of Books, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so I have contemporary reading that is very instrumental, and then I have my own literature track. Yeah. Does, then, that li- does it track include, I know you, you put <clears throat> novels first and foremost, but I was wondering about other genres, like, uh, I mean, slow reading, say, uh, poetry or philosophy, or I don't know, other genres yes. that you would want, yeah. Yes, I read poetry um, uh, with great pleasure, usually a poem or two at night in collections by single authors before mm-hmm. I go to sleep. And then I'll go through a book, and that will often be a career, a poet's career, and it might take up to a year. And I I love that. I also read a little bit of short stories. I read uh, plays in print because it's hard to get to many plays. And and I read a fair bit of literary criticism and history just for the interest of it. Uh, So, yeah, it's more than novels, but the novels are kind of at the heart of the project as a reader. But I read at the same pace at all times and in all places. I can't hurry. I can't slow down. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it's not a fast pace. It's just my pace. And uh, I, I love reading in the way that it puts you under, like a hypnotist puts you under. Um, it's uh, that willing suspension of disbelief that uh, I don't. I don't read critically. I don't read as a writer trying to figure out how they did it. That might come later, but mainly I'm under, and that. And in that sense, I'm kind of out of conscious control. I only read at the pace that my mind can take it in. And so you don't understand science fiction as outside of the realist tradition, then. You think of the science fiction that you're doing is a continuation of that sort of realism, you know. Well, well, there are many things going on there. Um, Say that maybe science fiction is a kind of a prolective, proleptic realism in other words you're trying to cast realism off into the future which is a weird a weird thing to try and so say to someone well this is a story of what happens on the moons of jupiter in the year uh 3000 well immediately that sounds like a fantasy and it sounds like it's going to be a romance at best something um like a dream. Well, if you love novels, that's not good enough. You want a, a sense of this is the way life is. And so to a certain extent, the kind of science fiction that I do and am interested in, you have to overcompensate for the weirdness of the basic conception by adding even more realistic detail. Mm-hmm. To uh, So it doesn't look like a cardboard set, but looks like something you can really believe in. And that, that helps the suspension of disbelief so that people reading a science fiction novel, they can fall into it and they go, well, uh, I guess Mars must really be like that. And that's how you would build the first shelter on Mars because there's so much detail there. So my books have a craziness to them that, uh, you know, there's some risks being taken there. Um, But it, it served my purposes. It seemed to me to solve the problems that I had set myself. Yeah. So, so speaking of which, can I ask what you think of that? Do you know that Frederick Turner epic about the terraforming of Mars? The oh poem? yes. Yeah. Yes. Genesis. You, Genesis. Exactly. What do you What do you make? What do you think of it? I think it's great. It's I, I a, do too. Yeah. It's a wonderful epic poem, and all of Turner's epic poems that are science fictional or uh, fantastica. There's a post-apocalyptic one called The New World. 
uh, and there's a recent one about things kind of falling apart, but not quite called Apocalypse. Um, yeah, I have and, that on my reading list. I haven't gotten to it yet. Yeah, yeah, they're all yeah. good. I, for me, Genesis is maybe the best of them, but they are all at a very high level of both uh, poetry and narrative. Yeah, um, he's doing a strange thing that is his own project, and I I really uh, love it because he is a wonderful poet at the level of the line. Mm -hmm. So it isn't as if he's just a, a novelist that is clunking out things in verse. He's a true poet. And, and so you, what you get is this marvelous compaction and, and flair for phrasing. Uh, things are said beautifully mm -hmm. in, in the way that poetry ought to be. It's quite an accomplishment. Yeah. But so I guess the, it, do you think of it as an accomplishment that is comparable to what you're aiming at with your own, with your own Mars trilogy? Or do you think of them as in different registers? Well, they are in different registers, and I think he's more like Le Guin. What I admire in, in Le Guin and in Frederick Turner is um, an ability to compress and to find the beautiful phrase. Mm. And, you know, I would, I, I aspire to that, I try for that, but I see that they're very good at that. They have a very clean line, they, uh, they don't perhaps need the or they don't want the intensive uh, realist details that might make something feel more substantial. They're willing to go with the power of poetry alone or with phrasing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so can I ask how the Suvin uh, phrase cognitive estrangement fits in with the way you've just described what you think your, um, what, what your own sort of realist science fiction does? Does that, yes. does that resonate or, yeah? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Suvin's very important, uh, theoretically. And his cognitive estrangement comes out of Brecht, the, the uh, Verfremden effect, this, the estrangement effect, uh, the V effect, and, and, and the Russians and Brecht. Yeah, Schlossky too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What you want to do is present to the reader a, a skewed vision that at first you are being told, well, this is very, very different from you. Uh, but look at it anyway, and then there's a secondary turn, uh, another turn of the screw that says, but wait, we were describing your reality all along, and then you right. have to think, wow, my reality is really weirder than I thought it was. It's not to be taken for granted. It's historical. It's constructed. We could do it differently. So there's a lot of utopianism in the, in the uh, estrangement effect. And uh, what I've been saying over the last couple of years is I think science fiction works by a double action that is a... This is one way to talk about the estrangement effect. Um, the, the glasses that you put on at a 3D movie, mm -hmm. the, those special glasses where one lens is showing you one thing and the other lens is showing you another thing slightly, mm -hmm. and your brain puts together a 3D view. Well, science fiction, one lens is showing you a real attempt to imagine a possible future. The other lens is a metaphor for the way things are right now. Um, it, you know, it feels like time is speeding up. I feel like a robot. Um, the, 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 the metaphors of the basic science fictional tropes are all pretty obvious. Yeah. Um, and so what you get when the two coalesce is a, a vision of historical time, but cast, cast into the future. So like a trajectory or something. Yeah. So this, I think, is one way of describing the estrangement effect. Yeah, that's an amazing analogy. I, I really like that. So, so can I ask, do you, when you look back at your own novels over the years, do you see 
your understanding of what you're doing changing? Like, can you look at the early books and say, oh, I, 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 I thought about it so differently then from how I think about it now? Or? Well, I do see uh, a really big break that came, and that came with Red Mars. Mm-hmm. And so all of my novels before Red Mars, um, there's a half dozen or so of them, were operating by a, a style sheet, you might say, an agreed upon uh, understanding of how science fiction should be written that has to do with a little bit with Heinlein's um, The Door Dilated, that you don't explain things, that you write as if you were in the year that it was being written and you don't into detailed uh, explanations or descriptions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cut exposition, let the action describe the world, blah, blah. Well, everybody did that. That became the norm. And if you went back to an earlier style, it was seen as clunky or ignorant uh, or boring or unreadable. And so I decided with Red Mars, we had this incredible mass of new information about Mars. And I wanted that reality effect I've described to you. And I said, I don't care about that rule anymore. I am going to talk about rocks. People say I talk about rocks for 20 pages at a time. What they really mean is two paragraphs at a time. Yeah. <laughs> and it feels like 20 pages. Right. Uh, and it cracks me up how um, the world is still caught in that older rubric of um, no exposition allowed or else you're blowing it. Well, I, flat, I flatly disbelieve it now. And you can see in Red Mars that I, I cast caution to the winds and tried a completely different style. And so um, it's a controversial uh, book. It has high positive and high negative in mm-hmm. terms of reader response. And there's nothing I can do about that. The, the idea you can please everyone is, is, a, is easily uh, lost when you pay attention. Um, you can't please everyone. You just have to write what you want to. Um, well, uh, Stan, thank you very much. I don't want to, uh, monopolize your time. Um, so especially given how much you read, <laughs> I feel like I can't, I can't get in the way of your, uh, oh, no, your, right. so, <laughs> your completism, yeah. um, or your almost power, your para completism. But anyway, um, thanks a lot. Recall this book is hosted by John Plotz and usually by Elizabeth Ferry with music by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, sound editing by Claire Ogden, website design and social media by Kaliska Ross. So we always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, suggestions for future episodes, um, or we uh, are very happy to hear uh, via the um, hashtag books in dark times, the books that you're reading now. You can also email us or directly or contact us via social media. And finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. You might be interested in other uh, Books in Dark Time conversations, as well as our conversations with such writers as Zadie Smith, Shishin Liu, and Samuel Delaney. So um, thank you so much, Dan. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, John. And uh, thanks to you all for listening. 